When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Kill Global Coaching and Consulting. Go to KILNGlobalCoaching.com when you're ready to bake success into work and life. Now for the next episode of Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer for Zora, Valerie Jackson. Hey, what you drink? There's a quote that's coming to mind that I'm hearing through your words and I'm going to mess this up and it's going to bug me because it's one of my favorite quotes is Viktor Frankl, who talks about between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in that choice is our freedom. And the, the thing I would love to get your perspective on is very often that space is so small that it feels like there isn't a choice. <laughs> I've got to respond this way. They did this to me. I've got to respond that way. And, you know, I, I, fall, in the, I fall in the camp of optimism. I, I fall in that space, uh, very often being confused of being a bit Pollyannish. Help me describe what it means to extend that space between stimulus and response so that you've got capacity to choose how you want to respond. Work. It takes work, practice to develop self-awareness, to understand what making a mindful choice means and feels like to understand what the seconds that might feel like eternities <laughs> in between stimulus and response feels like mindfulness teachers would say that space in between is the most important of all because that's where the potential lies and in a more esoteric sense it's also where we are tapped into the great beyond i think that it takes a lot of work to overcome conditioning And we, like Pavlov's dogs, are conditioned from a very early age to respond in certain ways to certain stimuli. You receive a test. You take the test, and your goal is to get the highest letter grade or number grade on that test. And when you get it, you celebrate. When you don't get it, you don't celebrate. Maybe you're even penalized, right? Like There are all sorts of ways in which we are trained and conditioned to respond to things. Even a non-response can be a response. The work for me, has been to recognize what is the stimulus? What is my conditioned response? What would be my optimal optimal response and why? And then make that conscious choice. And even if I choose to respond the way I would have initially, 
I am empowering myself to choose, which I think is the freedom that Frankel talks about. And it takes me out of a victim mindset into an empowered, autonomous, free individual mindset, which is the most powerful place from which we can make decisions, I believe. Wow. I, I love it. Now I'm going to leverage, I'm going to ask you to do some work here because uh, you're, you're not just a brilliant person with, with a lot of varied experiences from all over the world. And you've got the credentials. You're, you're also, you're the chief diversity officer of a publicly traded company. And so you are literally responsible for doing this work that I am just barely getting into because I've got a lot of interest in it and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the due diligence uh, to show myself approved, but you are there, you are in the crosshairs of, of helping the company uh, figure this out. And uh, I approach this work um, from, a, from a vantage point that's different than a lot of my colleagues. So a lot of the people that are in the DE&I space, they, they have come from an HR perspective. And so they bring that human resources, people development space with them. And I, I, don't, I don't have that background. My, my background is more general management, you know, vice president of sales. How do I keep the entire organization running so that we can deliver results to our shareholders? And so my approach has always been the economic benefit of making the right decision relative to your people. Help me understand and help me articulate from your perspective, what is the economic benefit of diversity, equity, inclusion? Uh, what's the economic benefit of doing what's right for our people, creating the conditions for our people to do their best work? Is there an economic benefit? And if there is, which I hope you say that there is, that's my whole, my whole shtick. <laughs> but if you say that there is, how do you, how do you quantify for those who are general managers, why this is the right thing to do for their stakeholders? Oh my goodness. The answer is so long and multi-layered in large part, because that is also what I've built my career on. I came to this work not through HR, but as a finance lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so client service, sales, and stakeholder delivery have always been front of mind. I then, once I moved into diversity work, learned about the importance of people and culture as business drivers. So the question posed is, is there an economic benefit? You bet you're behind. How do you quantify that benefit? Well, let me ask you, can your company function without people? Now, some companies can't, right? Maybe they run on AI. Maybe you've got bots and that's all you need. But if you need people to build your widgets, people to sell your widgets, people to keep your widgets in compliance, people to keep your people legal, then there is a strong economic benefit to ensuring that those people are hired well, integrated well and give you their best work because every dollar you invest in their experience is an investment in them and the return you can get is their productivity and their engagement their innovation their loyalty they're staying in place and helping you build and sell so if we do not invest in people of any and all stripes then we're literally 
throwing our money at a dartboard and hoping it sticks. Now, why diversity? Why inclusion? I'm a securities lawyer. Let me have a second. Do you have an investment portfolio? Have you ever heard of the concept of a diverse portfolio of investments? Now, why is that? Huh? Usually it's because you want to invest in different areas to ensure that you are maximizing the potential of all of your investments and also hedging your bets in case this side doesn't work out so well. That's the diversity piece. Now, the inclusion piece. Don't you want to make sure your money is actually invested with a company or a fund, heck, even if it's an ETF that you have faith in? The human version of that is people feeling secure in where they work. It's almost like an insurance policy. And when we feel secure in where we work because we feel like we belong, we are respected, we are valued, we have opportunities to engage and shine, we will give you our best work. And you will get probably not 1x, but 3x or more of the investment that you made in us. Now, I can go more, and I kind of got a little passionate, but I think you get where I'm going. We need, we need, we need an amen break. Uh, we need an amen break because you have been articulating everything that I have believed to be true. And, you know, the way that I have explained it uh, in my layman's terms is that if I am the general manager, it is my responsibility to create the condition, to create the environment so that you feel comfortable giving me your best. And if there is anything that's standing in the way, causing you not to feel comfortable enough to give me your best, DEI then becomes my responsibility. This may be the turning point in our relationship. You may, you may, you may, if you, if you have started to like me, this may change that. Because I have said that at the end of the day, I don't know that I need you to like me. However, it is incumbent upon you as the leader to create the environment where I want to give you my best. Because I believe everyone shows up at, shows up to work wanting to give their best. I, I haven't met anyone who, unless there were like some trauma issue, I don't think anyone shows up thinking, how can I screw this up today? Everyone wants to give their best. It's the leader's responsibility to create the environment where their best is possible. So now clean up everything that I just said. Well, where, help, me, help me straighten all that up. I, I, I don't need to clean up. And I think that all of these areas are in the realm of personal opinion. Uh, I agree with you 1000% that it is not the head of DNI's job to create an environment. It is everyone's job. And I would expand on what you say, said uh, to say it is the manager's job to help create an environment, not just where you feel like you want to give and do your best, but where I also mm. want to give and do my best, where everyone wants to give and do their best. And I think that there is a gap between wanting to do your best and wanting to tank the company. There's a lot of space in between. There's a lot of area for motivation and demotivation in between. And inclusive environments have been shown to yield greater innovation, greater collaboration, faster off the line traction in teams. And managers, however you denominate them in your organization, are critical for everything. It also makes it one of the most stressful roles in a company. 
you're responsible for doing your own stuff and helping to create an environment for people to thrive, it's a lot. It is a ton, which is why I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks for so long has been that people view any people in culture work, DEI, whatever you want to call it, as outside of themselves, as only relevant for other people or certain groups. And we don't perceive it as being directly relevant to our success. We don't perceive it as something that we need to thrive ourselves. When we're able to see that this work is crucial for me to thrive, then we might see an uptick in investment. It's the what's in it for me principle that every stakeholder needs to answer before we get their buy-in. And sometimes it's a little more challenging to articulate that, but I think once you click into what you're motivated by and what you're excited about and what you want to drive, whether it's helping other people or building your legacy, I'm not here to judge, but whatever it is, lock it in, let's go. Because <laughs> we have a company to uplift and products to build and sell and stakeholders to wrap our arms around and communities to build. I mean, we got things to do and they all require people who are amazing and messy and complex and delicate and worth every ounce of consternation that we invest because people make magic happen. Uh, that is it. That, I mean, that is it. Uh, another amen moment here. Because I, you know, again, I, I, I've said a couple of times that DE&I is not something that you do in addition to running your business. It is how you run your business. It is how you run your business. And I, I just love the way that you articulate that if you have people, this becomes front and center as to how you lead your people. Uh, oh my gosh, I just, again, I'm, I'm just so honored to have had this conversation and to be having this conversation with you. What do you say, because I, 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 see, a lot of, I see a lot of organizations, not as many today, as, as maybe three years ago, but still a few where they view this work as a check the box type activity. We've got to do something. We've got to put out some sort of statement. So let's bring in uh, some outside firm to put us through a, a two hour training. If you can make this 90 minutes, that would be even better uh, to get us through this training so that we can communicate to our, to our uh, audience, to our public that we've, responded to this DE and I craze, but there's, there's really no uh, sustainability to their effort. What do you say to those, to those companies who still see this as a check the box activity to be navigated around as opposed to something that's going to accelerate their performance? Hmm. So of all the companies I've either worked in or worked with, you know, as in an advisory capacity or just consulting with friends in different roles. And of course, clients when I was back in the firms, I would say that there are kind of two broad categories of company that fall into that bucket. Number one, companies that routinely leverage reactionary thinking and decision-making. So the way they're looking at DNI is the same way they're looking at occupational health and safety, recruiting, compensation, right? They're waiting until something pressures them to act. And then the other category I find is companies that 
don't know what to do and have not yet had a, call it critical mass of experiences that make them think that this is now timely. And both end up coming across as being reactionary, but I think in different ways and for different reasons. Bottom line, I think that when they end up making those moves, let's just put out a statement and be done with it. I think that is evidence of a true lack of understanding of the power of your choices. And often that's because you just don't have this knowledge. I mean, this field has been around for so long. My One of my previous law firms, I believe, was the first to create the chief diversity officer role in law firms, and that was back in 2003. I then moved into tech in 2018, another industry where you really don't see a lot of DNI heads who've been around for more than 10 years, at least not those who are native to tech. There are some of us who came in, right? And so I think that there are some companies that have just been slower to focus on some of what you might call the more nuanced people and culture issues. I don't view DNI as just internal people and internal culture. It's also how you sell, how you connect, how you message, all the things. But if you don't know that because you don't have that expertise on deck, you don't know what you don't know. So you default to what you do know. And how many leaders do we know who don't like to admit that they don't know something? Did I say that right? Oh, yeah. A lot of negatives it in there, but you know makes what I'm trying sense to say. To me. Most lawyers don't like to admit that we don't know something, even though that's the first step to learning. So it can be a tricky self-fulfilling prophecy, but my recommendation is always get the expertise. Whether you buy it, you borrow it, you liaise with it, I don't care. What's challenging is the quality control and understanding, am I working with someone who understands my business and culture enough to be able to advise me, or are they just telling me what they told 20 other people? You know what I mean? It's really tough. And that's why this field is worth investing in for the right deep expertise and value that you can gain if you leverage your people and culture efforts right yeah yeah i want i want to go back to something that that you said earlier um because it, it really has me it really has me mesmerized right now you, you said that people are sticky and people are messy and um that that really reminds me of people are not necessarily looking for their leaders to be perfect. And I think a lot of times leaders are handicapped by this inclination that they've got to have the perfect response. They're held back by saying, we've got to come up with the perfect response. We've got to come up with the perfect DE&I strategy. We've got to come, we've got to come with the perfect response to this uh, safety issue as opposed to just responding. Now, that doesn't mean that you're haphazard, but uh, I think people tend to be forgiving as long as they know that your heart is in the right place. And um, I'm just reminded of an approach that Howard Schultz took to some um, racial equity issues, and his initial response was not right, right? His, his initial response was to 
have the baristas talking directly to customers about racial issues and wasn't right. His employees ultimately told him, look, we're getting killed out here because we can't have these conversations. And consultants came in and said, yeah, that was a boneheaded idea. Consumers ultimately said, yeah, you are obviously not cued into what is going on here. And so that was a mistake. But what he did is he said, okay, my bad. I'm going to, I'm going to pull that down. I'm going to try something else because this is my intention. And I think consumers appreciated the fact that he said, back to your point, he said, that was a dumb idea. I was wrong, (laughs) but here's my intention. Let me try something else. Uh, as opposed to spending a lot of time trying to get it right on the front end. Now, again, I'm going to need my attorney here on this podcast to straighten me out. Help me with what I just shared about desire for leaders to get it right. And that often seems to get in the way of the authenticity of what their intent is to do. Okay, first, let me say that I'm not licensed to give legal advice in your jurisdiction or mine. Okay, Um, I am licensed, just not where we are right now. So I want to be very clear. So I actually find that people respond more to leaders when we are not perfect. Mm. Say that one more time. (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) I believe people respond more to leaders when we are not perfect because it's an opportunity for them to feel more connected to us because they know they are not perfect either. And when you connect with someone who is a leader in your organization on an emotional human level, that's the beginning of building something called trust. And if you don't have trust, you're one step away from not having people. And we've talked about what businesses can do without people, very little. So, I find that when leaders are competent in delivering sort of a solid business result, right? If you're competent in steering the business in the sort of minimal commercially viable way, when you get certain things wrong, to your point, he got something wrong, but he explained what he was trying to achieve and how that business outcome benefits everyone. And so help me course correct. Now, perhaps bringing folks in before he made that decision, he might have arrived at a different decision. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I, coming from in-law, we are incentivized to only produce perfection. And that's work product, right? But it trickles into all other aspects of how we show up. And so for me to feel comfortable being messy or imperfect or say, I don't know, took a lot of personal work for me to do. I'm not going to lie. And so now that I'm there and I see how differently I'm able to connect with people now versus before, it's a game changer. It is a game changer because at the end of the day, I don't care what your title is. I don't care if you are a leader on paper or solely in your heart. We are all humans who long to be seen in a meaningful way. And when you demonstrate to me that you are flawed, that you see your flaws and are working to drive toward a less flawed, more positive outcome, and you want to bring me along, I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. 
because I connect with you on that point. I connect with you as another human in the journey of being an adult on this rock, trying to figure it out. But if you present like you've got it all figured out and you made a mistake, but it's really somebody else's fault, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't resonate with me. It resonates with a facade and facades don't stand up very long. Mm-hmm. Not in pandemics, not in natural disasters, not in desperate moments. What stands up is your word that you used earlier, authenticity, true humanity. That's people remember. That's what they feel. So we feel. And I think it's really something strong to build on. Oh, oh my gosh. This is, this is what you get when you listen to Whiskey Jazz and Leadership. And this, this, this is what this conversation is about. Uh, I've got so many more questions I want to ask you because I want to I want to dive into this authenticity, and I want to talk to you about uh, something that I've heard uh, from people who have met presidents. I, I've heard from people if you if you talk to uh, if you listen to the episode I did with Ms. Dolores Presley, she talks about meeting Oprah Winfrey, but she said it was similar to when she met President Bill Clinton. Uh, I've heard this same thing. If you listen to my conversation with with Pegeen, she talks about meeting President Barack Obama. And I'm sensing a little bit of that from you here where I feel like I'm the only person on the planet that matters for this moment. And that really speaks to your your ability to connect, which you talked about earlier. Uh, I really want to get into that conversation. But I don't want to get into that here. I say, let's bring this into the VIP room because we've shared enough for free. So if you've got a few more minutes, I'd love to bring you into the VIP room just to continue this conversation. I would love to. I want to see who else is in there. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, well, for this, let's let's raise, raise your espresso. Uh, I'm going to raise my Blanton's number A. And uh, I, I just want to share with you just how appreciative I am that uh, you have shared this 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 time with my listeners uh, that you would respond to uh, a request to appear on a podcast with a uh, with an interesting name. You have definitely lived into the environment that we're trying to create uh, when you drink good whiskey, uh, listen to amazing jazz, and talk about what it really takes to be effective as a leader. And we haven't even talked about jazz. So we've got to talk about, because your, your, uh, your sister is like doing the jazz thing for real. We'll share, we'll share her name and a little bit about her here, but we need to talk about her in the VIP room as well, because she's like the real thing. So who, who is this person I'm talking about here? <laughs> Alexandra Jackson. She's my sister. She is a jazz musician. She's amazing. She went to school for music at the University of Miami, uh, studied jazz music and business because she wanted to be able to run her own thing because she's my mother's daughter. We talked about that. And this most recent album, Legacy and Alchemy, I mean, it's got everything you might need. If you like Bossa Nova, it's there. If you like Al Jarreau, she sang with him. If you like you know, Yvonne Lenz or Carlinos Brown. I mean, literally some of the last recordings of people who were jazz greats like Al Jarreau are on her album. I mean, it's just, and her voice, should I talk about her voice? Her voice is literally like a smooth whiskey, colorful, strong, yet soft. It warms you up and it's got that secret sort of 
you didn't know it was coming. And all of a sudden you're like, "Woo, I feel different. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait for this VIP conversation. Uh, and again, thank you so much for sharing this with my listeners. I, I, I made a promise at the top of this conversation that someone's life might be changed. And uh, I think that that someone may just have been me. So I hope someone else got something out of this because I'd feel kind of, it would be kind of awkward for me to only, for me to be the only person. You're not the only person. Something from me this too. I'm so, learning it every step of the way with you. So raise your espresso. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guest and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.